Hello, David Jameson here, editor of Conta.Scot, and this is the Sunday Salmon. The second part of this podcast is for subscribers and can be accessed at patreon.com forward slash ContaScot, where there's a vast range of other podcasts and exclusive content and events. As I speak, it is, of course, the first day of Tory Conference. And I know that we're all uh, very excited for the event this year. The most excited any of us have been for a Conservative conference since Theresa May's hilarious meltdown 2017. It might be quite hard to recall that conference because it's part of a period in time in British political history which has been swept away by the media and is likely, I think, to be neglected by future British political historians because it was part of what you might call the Corbyn Interregnum. Of course, in 2017, Jeremy Corbyn delivered 13 million votes for Labour and shook the Tory party, robbing it of its then majority. Theresa May had to face a hostile Tory conference and rally the troops for the agonising internal debates that the party would face in the following years. Now, we all know how that story ends. The Labour Party drifted increasingly towards the so-called People's Vote campaign, a, I would say, rather transparent attempt to undermine the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn. And you may remember that the point man in that campaign was one Sir Keir Starmer QC. We'll get on to him and his conference speech in a little bit. As for Liz Truss, it's already been, I'd say, quite a rough start at our conference, I've seen various elements of the Tory and wider British capitalist establishment given a pelters. Among them are our rubbery-faced Michael Gove, who seems to be working as an outrider for whatever faction in the Tory party may see themselves replacing May before the next general election. I wouldn't be surprised if his very aggressive and confrontational style isn't a bit of kite-flying for Rishi Sunak. That faction in the Conservative Party, what's sometimes referred to as the Treasury Party, the permanent parts of the Tory party who are impervious to the thin democracy arising from the party membership, who might be today's version of what used to be called the men in grey suits, the party's wealthiest donors, activists, ministers, who form a permanent core in the party, they must be absolutely furious about what's going on. Rishi Sunak did, after all, accurately predict all of this. He predicted that if Theresa May and her Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, unleashed simultaneously a major package of tax cuts, including the abolition of the top rate of tax, the 45p rate of tax, the abolition of forthcoming business taxes, and a swathe of other cuts, most of which benefit the very wealthiest in society, and combined that with a major spludge through the state, through borrowed money, to try and protect the British economy from the consequences of skyrocketing fuel prices. A huge blast of state spending, to the tune of well over £180 billion. To put that in perspective, it's bigger than the bank bailout of 2008, It's also bigger than the furlough scheme, which, if you recall, transferred the wages of millions of workers from the private to the public sector during the pandemic. So this is the third great splurge of this kind since 2008. The state has been transformed into a kind of permanent welfare state 
for banks, big energy corporations and the other big multinational firms who are the masters of contemporary British capitalism. This contradiction of slashing taxes ostensibly to increase growth in the economy, plus the permanent cascade of state finances into the coffers of the wealthiest, has finally caused international markets to panic about the stability and the credibility of the British economy. And this, of course, isn't the first time that there's been a major rift between the British capitalist class and the Conservative Party, the party that has represented their interests for all of the time that Britain has been a democracy and for much longer. Of course, Britain's capitalists were also, by and large, very unhappy with Brexit. All of the major confederations of British industry and finance condemned the plans to quit the single market and the customs union, a free trade arrangement which, of course, they had benefited from mightily. But I had thought that the 2019 election victory for the Conservatives had drawn a line under those divisions. The refusal of the parliamentary establishment to implement the Brexit vote had itself become a source of major political and social instability. With the vote through and a solid Conservative majority, Britain's capitalist lobby could seek to guide the country back towards the good graces of the international markets. But it's become clear in recent weeks that the division between Britain's capitalists and their traditional political home is somewhat more lasting. That's why, for me, the most interesting criticism of Truss's government on the first day of the Tory party conference came not from any Conservative Party politician, but from the current director of the Confederation of British Industry, Tony Danker. Danker announced that If the Conservative Party had come to him and asked him what his top 30 recommendations for increasing economic growth in Britain would be, Truss's tax cuts wouldn't make it into even that top 30. And the CBI is really the last word on this kind of stuff. They are usually the ones, of course, pushing for economic liberalisation. They are the voice of Britain's big firms. So this is a calculated and vicious attack on the traditional party of British capitalism. The first party, that is, of British capitalism. But there is a second party of British capitalism, and Keir Starmer has made it safe for the likes of Tony Danker. And here's what I find interesting about the current director of the CBI. Tony Danker has been holding public meetings with the Labour Mayor of Manchester, Andy Burnham. In fact, he had one of these public conversations with Danker in my own hometown of Glasgow just recently, where they discussed how to renovate Britain's economy. Andy Burnham, I think, is really one to watch here. He's living a sort of double life. By night, he addresses rallies for the Enough is Enough campaign launched by the CWU union and agitating against the effects of the cost of living crisis. By day, he's palling around with figures at the top of the British establishment, the director of the CBI, using rather different language to discuss the future of Britain's economy. Now, I think it's really possible that this new palliness between the capitalist establishment and Starmer's Labour Party has a future. One can certainly envisage the scenario where the Labour Party becomes the party of capitalist stability in Britain. It has, after all, played this role before. But a capitalist-backed Starmer Labour government, I think, would be quite different from the 1997 New Labour administrations and those that followed it. When Tony Blair came to office... In 1997, 
The state coffers were full, the economy was in relatively good health, things could only get better. If Starmer comes to power at any point in the next couple of years, he's very likely to inherit an economy riven with inflation, struggling with low growth, and estate finances hollowed out by successive bailouts for the banks and monopoly industries. He will be there, as figures like Tony Danker see it, to discipline the economy, and in particular to discipline the working class, to restore order to the state finances, in other words, austerity, to hold down pay claims, who knows, to cut jobs and services. I think it's important we know this, so that we're not sucked into the vortex of this ruling class strategy. There's a real danger, I think, in returning to the kind of politics that parts of the left adopted during the Brexit impasse, where many allowed themselves to become defenders of a kind of deep establishment against the chaotic manoeuvrings on parts of the Conservative Party, to align with the big institutions of both domestic and international capitalism against the interests and democratic desires of the British population. At his own conference, Keir Starmer committed to a series of new policies. I saw plenty of commentators on the left congratulating what was essentially quite a conservative prospectus. Starmer's headline policy pledges were to return the 45p rate of tax, that is Boris Johnson's top rate of tax, to create a new British energy company with a very limited remit. This is not taking over the big energy firms which are raking in huge profits at the expense of millions of people across the country. The nationalisation of parts of the rail system, we'll have to see what comes of that, but you know, even if that entire infrastructure were taken in by the state, it wouldn't be hugely unusual by the standards of modern capitalism. There is a mood, I think, in parts of the capitalist class for a major rationalisation of the system, including probably strategic nationalisations. And lastly, an increase in spending on the transition to renewable energies, or the greening of the economy and so on. Again, anyone paying attention to contemporary green policies knows that they are a creature of the big capitalist lobby. These are going to be schemes to renovate the profitability of capitalism behind a, a screen of green kind of progressive rhetoric. The jubilation some people evinced over this indicates that for many on the left they will see themselves essentially as a sort of ginger group on what is quite a right-wing manifestation of the Labour Party and one that will be tasked by the British establishment with attacking workers' living standards in the years to come. That's a disastrous path, and instead I think it's incumbent on those of us who want a confrontation with the entire British establishment to fight for the independence of workers taking action against this strategy. (laughs) 